Chapter Three of the Old Regime in Canada by Francis Parkman, Jr. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three, sixteen forty five to seventeen ten. The Victor Vanquished. Having triumphed over his rival, Dornay was left free to settle his accounts with the Massachusetts Puritans, who had offended him anew by sending provisions to Fort St. Jean, having always insisted that they were free to trade with either party. They, on their side, were no less indignant with him for his seizure of Grafton's vessel and harsh treatment of him and his men. After some preliminary negotiation and some rather sharp correspondence, Dornay, in September 1646, sent a pinnace to Boston bearing his former envoy, Marie, accompanied by his own secretary and one Monsieur Louis. It was Sunday, the Puritan Sabbath, when the three envoys arrived, and the pious inhabitants were preparing for the afternoon sermon. Marie and his two colleagues were met at the wharf by two militia officers, and conducted through the silent and dreary streets to the house of Captain, now Major Gibbons, who seems to have taken upon himself in an especial manner the office of entertaining strangers of consequence. All was done with much civility, but no ceremony, for the Lord's Day must be kept inviolate. Winthrop, who had again been chosen governor, now sent an officer with a guard of musketeers to invite the envoys to his own house. Here he regaled them with wine and sweetmeats, and then informed them of our manner that all men either come to our public meetings or keep themselves quiet in their houses. He then laid before them such books in Latin and French as he had, and told them that they were free to walk in his garden. Though the diversion offered was no doubt of the dullest, since the literary resources of the colony then included little beside arid theology, and the walk in the garden promised but moderate delights among the bitter pot-herbs provided against days of fasting, the victims resigned themselves with good grace, and as the governor tells us, gave no offence. Sunset came at last, and set the captives free. On Monday both sides fell to business. The envoys showed their credentials, but as the commissioners of the United Colonies were not yet in session, nothing conclusive could be done till Tuesday. Then, all being assembled, each party made its complaints of the conduct of the other, and a long discussion followed. Meals were provided for the three visitors at the ordinary, or inn, where the magistrates dined during the sessions of the general court. The governor, as their host, always sat with them at the board, and strained his Latin to do honour to his guests. They, on their part, that courtesies should be evenly divided, went every morning at eight o'clock to the governor's house, whence he accompanied them to the place of meeting, and at night he, or some of the commissioners in his stead, 
attended them to their lodgings at the house of major gibbons serious questions were raised on both sides but as both wanted peace explanations were mutually made and accepted the chief difficulty lay in the undeniable fact that in escorting la tour to his fort in sixteen forty three the massachusetts volunteered had chased dawney to port royal killed some of his men burned his mill and robbed his pinnace for which wrongs the envoys demanded heavy damages it was true that the governor and magistrates had forbidden acts of aggression on the part of the volunteers but on the other hand they had had reason to believe that their prohibition would be disregarded and had taken no measures to enforce it the envoys clearly had good ground of complaint and here says winthrop they did stick two days at last they yielded so far as to declare that what dornay wanted was not so much compensation in money as satisfaction to his honor by an acknowledgment of their fault on the part of the massachusetts authorities and they further declared that he would accept a moderate present in token of such acknowledgment the difficulty now was to find such a present the representatives of massachusetts presently bethought themselves of a very fair new sedan which the viceroy of mexico had sent to his sister and which had been captured in the west indies by one captain cromwell a corsair who gave it to our governor winthrop to whom it was entirely useless gladly parted with it in such a cause and the sedan being graciously accepted ended the discussion the treaty was signed in duplicate by the commissioners of the united colonies and the envoys of dornay and peace at last was concluded the conference had been conducted with much courtesy on both sides one small cloud appeared but soon passed away the french envoys displayed the fleur-de-lis at the masthead of their pinnace as she lay in the harbour the townsmen were incensed and monsieur marie was told that to fly foreign colours in boston harbour was not according to custom he insisted for a time but at length ordered the offending flag to be lowered on the twenty eighth of september the envoys bade farewell to winthrop who had accompanied them to their pinnace with a guard of honour five cannon saluted them from boston five from the castle and three from charlestown a supply of mutton and a keg of sherry were sent on board their vessel and then after firing an answering salute from their swivels they stood down the bay till their sails disappeared among the islands latour had now no more to hope from his late supporters he had lost his fort and what was worse he had lost his indomitable wife throughout the winter that followed his disaster he had been entertained by samuel maverick at his house on noddles island in the spring he begged hard for further help 
and as he begged in vain he sailed for newfoundland to make the same petition to sir david kirk who then governed that island kirk refused but lent him a pinnace and sent him back to boston here some merchants had the good nature or folly to entrust him with goods for the indian trade to the amount of four hundred pounds thus equipped he sailed for acadia in kirk's pinnace manned with his own followers and five new england men on reaching cape sable he conspired with the master of the pinnace and his own men to seize the vessel and set the new england sailors ashore which was done latour it is said shooting one of them in the face with a pistol it was winter and the outcasts roamed along the shore for a fortnight half frozen and half starved till they were met by micmac indians who gave them food and a boat in which by rare good fortune they reached boston where their story convinced the most infatuated that they had harboured a knave whereby solemnly observes the pious but much mortified winthrop who had been latour's best friend it appeared as the scripture saith that there is no confidence in an unfaithful or carnal man when the capture of fort st john was known at court the young king was well pleased and promised to send dornay the gift of a ship but he forgot to keep his word and requited his faithful subject with the less costly reward of praises and honours after a preamble reciting his merits and especially his care courage and valour in taking by our express order and reducing again under our authority the fort on the st john which latour had rebelliously occupied with the aid of foreign sectaries the king confirms d'aunay's authority in acadia and extends it on paper from the st lawrence to virginia empowering him to keep for himself such parts of this broad domain as he might want and grant out the rest to others who were to hold of him as vassals he could build forts and cities at his own expense command by land and sea make war or peace within the limits of his grant appoint officers of government justice and police and in short exercise sovereign power with the simple reservation of homage to the king and a tenth part of all gold silver and copper to the royal treasury a full monopoly of the fur trade throughout his dominion was conferred on him and any infringement of it was to be punished by confiscation of ships and goods and thirty thousand livres of damages on his part he was enjoined to establish the name power and authority of the king subject the nations to his rule and teach them the knowledge of the true god and the light of the christian faith acadia in short was made a hereditary fief and d'aunay and his heirs became lords of a domain as large as a european kingdom 
d'aunay had spent his substance in the task of civilizing a wilderness the king had not helped him and though he belonged to a caste which held commerce in contempt he must be a fur trader or a bankrupt latour's fort st jean was a better trading station than port royal and it had woefully abridged d'aunay's profits hence an ignoble competition in beaver skins had greatly embittered their quarrel all this was over fort st jean the best trading stand in acadia was now in its conqueror's hands and his monopoly was no longer a mere name but a reality everything promised a thriving trade and a growing colony when the scene was suddenly changed on the twenty fourth of may sixteen fifty a dark and stormy day d'aunay and his valet were in a birch canoe in the basin of port royal not far from the mouth of the annapolis perhaps neither master nor man was skilled in the management of the treacherous craft that bore them the canoe overset d'aunay and the valet clung to it and got astride of it one at each end there they sat sunk to the shoulders the canoe though under water having buoyancy enough to keep them from sinking farther so they remained an hour and a half and at the end of that time d'aunay was dead not from drowning but from cold for the water still retained the chill of winter the valet remained alive and in this condition they were found by indians and brought to the north shore of the annapolis where their father ignace the superior of the capuchins went to find the body of his patron brought it to the fort and buried it in the chapel in presence of his wife and all the soldiers and inhabitants the father superior highly praises the dead chief and is astonished that the earth does not gape and devour the slanderers who say that he died in desperation as one abandoned of god he admits that in former times cavillers might have found wherewith to accuse him but declares that before his death he had amended all his faults this is the testimony of a capuchin whose fraternity he had always favoured the Recollets, on the other hand, whose patron was Latour, complained that D'Aunay had ill-used them and demanded redress. He seems to have been a favourable example of his class, loyal to his faith and his king, tempering pride with courtesy, and generally true to his cherished ideal of the gentilhomme Francais. In his qualities, as in his birth he was far above his rival and his death was the ruin of the only french colony in acadia that deserved the name as the news of his enemy's fate a new hope possessed latour he still had agents in france interested to serve him while the father of d'aunay who acted as his attorney was feeble with age and his children were too young to defend their interests 
there is an extraordinary document bearing date february sixteen fifty one or less than a year after d'aunay's death it is a complete reversal of the decree of sixteen forty seven in his favour latour suddenly appears as the favourite of royalty and all the graces before lavished on his enemy are now heaped upon him the lately proscribed rebel and traitor is confirmed as governor and lieutenant-general in new france his services to god and the king are rehearsed as of our certain knowledge and he is praised with the same emphasis used towards d'aunay in the decree of sixteen forty seven and almost in the same words the paper goes on to say that he latour would have converted the indians and conquered acadia for the king if d'aunay had not prevented him unless this document is a fabrication in the interest of latour as there is some reason to believe it suggests strange reflections on colonial administration during the minority of louis the fourteenth genuine or not latour profited by it and after a visit to france which proved a successful and fruitful one he returned to acadia with revived hopes the widow of d'aunay had eight children all minors and their grandfather the octogenarian rene de menu had been appointed their guardian he sent an incompetent and faithless person to port royal to fulfil the wardship of which he was no longer capable the unfortunate widow and her children needed better help d'aunay had employed as his agent one leborne a merchant of rochelle who now succeeded in getting the old man under his influence and induced him to sign an acknowledgment said to be false that d'aunay's heirs owed him two hundred and sixty thousand livres leborne next came to port royal to push his schemes and here he inveigled or frightened the widow into signing a paper to the effect that she and her children owed him two hundred and five thousand two hundred and eighty six livres it was fortunate for his unscrupulous plans that he had to do with the soft and tractable madame d'aunay and not with the high-spirited and intelligent amazon madame latour leborne now seized on port royal as security for the alleged debts while latour on his return from his visit to france induced the perplexed and helpless widow to restore to him fort st jean conquered by her late husband madame d'aunay beset with insidious enemies saw herself and her children in danger of total ruin she applied to the duc de vendome grand master chief and superintendent of navigation and offered to share all her acadian claims with him if he would help her in her distress but from the first vendome looked more to his own interests than to hers latour was not satisfied with her concessions to him and perplexing questions rose between them touching land claims and the fur trade 
to end these troubles she took a desperate step and on the twenty fourth of february sixteen fifty eight married her tormentor the foe of her late husband who had now been dead not quite three years her chief thought seems to have been for her children whose rights are guarded though to little purpose in the marriage contract she and latour took up their abode at fort st john of the children of her first marriage four were boys and four were girls they were ruined at last by the harpies leagued to plunder them and sought refuge in france where the boys were all killed in the wars of louis the fourteenth and at least three of the girls became nuns now following complicated disputes without dignity or interest and turning chiefly on the fur trade le borne and his son in virtue of their claims on the estate of Dornay, which were sustained by the French courts, got a lion's share of Acadia. A part fell also to Latour and his children by his new wife, while Nicholas Dennis kept a feeble hold on the shore of the Gulf of St. Lawrence as far north as Cape Rosiers. War again broke out between France and England and in sixteen fifty four major robert sedgwick of charlestown massachusetts who had served in the civil war as a major general of cromwell led a small new england force to acadia under a commission from the protector captured fort st jean port royal and all the other french stations and conquered the colony for england it was restored to france by the treaty of breda and captured again in sixteen ninety by sir william phipps the treaty of ryswick again restored it to france till in seventeen ten it was finally seized for england by general nicholson when after sedgwick's expedition the english were in possession of acadia latour not for the first time tried to fortify his claims by a british title and jointly with thomas temple and william crown obtained a grant of the colony from cromwell though he soon after sold his share to his co-partner temple he seems to have died in sixteen sixty six descendants of his were living in acadia in eighteen eighty and some may probably still be found there as for dornay no trace of his blood is left in the land where he gave wealth and life for france and the church End of chapter three